Hello again, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the new and improved Round the Modern Campfire podcast. Thanks again for tuning in this week. Before we get into the stories for tonight, I'd like to quickly plug my Patreon. If you would like to help out by becoming a patron, I now have three tiers going. Night Owls at $2, Firekeeper at $5, and Librarian at $8. Please keep in mind these are in US currency. This just keeps the podcast running smoothly and lets me keep producing more content for everyone. And, obviously, there are rewards for all the tiers, like choosing the stories for the next episode, guest narrating if you would be interested in doing so, and having your name listed off at the beginning or end of the episodes. You can find this podcast on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, and Breaker. Lastly, there is also the Round the Modern Campfire Facebook page, where you can get in contact with me, leave suggestions for stories, keep updated on the progress of this podcast, take part in deciding how the podcast works, or just generally chat. I'd love it if you popped in and said hi. Please also keep in mind if you like any of the stories from this episode, they are linked in the description so you can show these amazing authors the love they deserve. Anyway, with all that said and done, grab yourself a warm drink, a nice snack, and let's delve into the stories for tonight. My dad left this note before he supposedly killed himself. The contents of that letter were bizarre, unnerving, and terrifying, but they confirm what I already knew. My dad didn't kill himself. He was taken. But by what? Well, that's harder to explain. Perhaps if I just spoke out the contents of this letter, you'd understand. Anyway, here's his note. To those reading this letter, I want you to know that I do not go now out of desire to do so but rather out of obligation. I have to put to bed an old ghost that has never ceased visiting my nightly slumbers. To my family, my wife, son and grandchildren, I know you will probably not understand why I have done this, for I never told anyone about what has haunted my childhood memories, so allow me to do so now. When I was 11 years old, I had a brother who died. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, why didn't I ever mention it? Well... The reason is simple. I never spoke about Gregory, because if I did, I would have to revisit that day, and I would have to tell you all his truth. My truth. The truth that no one believed when an eleven-year-old boy told them. You will understand once I tell this tale. It all began one exceptionally warm August day, in the summer of 1964. The sun had scorched the sky clear of the storm clouds which had visited the town of Ellswich the night before. T'was a most monstrous tempest. Trees uprooted, beach front stores flooded, and great waves sent crashing against the fortifications of our simple little town. Yet not a cloud nor whisper of wind existed to tell that story. It was as if there had never been a storm. It was a glorious summer day with the happy-go-lucky, make-peace-not-war younglings, and a perfect 1950s families were racing to the sands and sea, wearing their striped bathers and small colourful trunks. Gregory, who was eight at that time, was bouncing around with excitement to go join the frolicking townies, and begged to go down to the beach. My mother, though, was too busy. She had errands to run, and so she shot down my brother's joy. Like all boys my age, I wanted to hang out with friends. And since I was old enough to go without my mother, I was ready in a flash and gearing up to join them. 
I had no intention of joining my mother on her errands, nor of entertaining my annoying younger brother. Oh, how I wish I could go back and tell myself to be more patient, to be kinder to Gregory and explain to my younger self how precious that annoying eight-year-old was. Alas, we cannot undo our mistakes. Our regrets hang around our necks until we die, and my biggest regret to this day is that I broke a promise. Gregory desperately wanted to go to the beach, but my mother was too busy to take him down. She demanded I do it, told me to let Gregory come hang out with me and my friends. She told me to look after Gregory. She forbid him from going into the sea, and that I was not to leave him alone. Essentially, that meant I couldn't join my friends in the surf. Instead, I would be babysitting on the burning sands. Reluctantly, I agreed, and under duress, I allowed my younger brother to accompany me down to the beach. Palm leaves, beech wood, seaweed, and all manner of debris littered the golden grains on the coast, the remnants of the terrible storm from the night before. A distressed woman, her brown hair disheveled, her eyes red and sore, desperately handed out flyers for her missing daughter. The paper said the girl was a year older than Gregory, but she looked a lot younger. It's a shame, but this often happens. Kids were always going out to watch the waves during a storm, oblivious to the dangers of doing so, and they often get swept off the pier and dragged out to sea. We had taken a flyer to be polite, and like everyone else, we deposited it in the bin when the woman wasn't looking. The sun beat down on us that day, and the golden sands beneath my feet blistered my soft skin. I looked out at the water, watched my friends splashing around, and longed to join them in the cooling waves. My friends began calling me, beckoning me to join them. Gregory turned to me and told me to go if I wanted. I knew I shouldn't leave him, but I really wanted to go. When you're 11, you don't have the imagination to envision all the possible dangers and risks of choosing to do such a decision. Moreover, that impulsive thinking we all have at that age eagerly tugged me towards the splashing blue currents, telling me not to worry, to enjoy my childhood summer days, which would surely never last. Placing our towels down, I told Gregory to wait there and to just make sandcastles. Upon entering the cooling surf, relief washed over me and I swam out to my friends. Calm waves splashed against our sun-kissed skin as we played a game of underwater tag, all the while my brother sat stacking castle after castle. Every now and then I would bob my head up or turn around to check. I'd call his name and give him a wave, and each and every time he'd wave back. However, I let my eyes leave the beach for just a second, and when I turned back, I saw Artel sat alone. I remember the feeling. It was a drowning feeling, really. A sense of absolute despair, bearing down upon me as my heart fell from my body and sank to the bottom of the ocean. Gregory was gone. In a panic, I called his name and frantically yelled at my friends, demanding to know if any of them saw where he went. They had no answers, only shrugs. So, in frustration, fear and fury, I rushed to the beach. Racing from the waves, I dug my arms through the thick water as though I was hoeing a field. I had kicked my legs as hard as I could, so hard I thought they might snap, as I desperately rushed from the salt water. With panic stinging my heart, I looked around for any sight of my brother, when suddenly I heard his little voice calling me. Bill! Bill, look at this! Little Gregory called. Immediately a tide of relief washed over me. But that relief turned to anger when I realised he had disobeyed me. 
Swinging my salt-drenched head around, I saw him, standing beneath the long wooden legs of the pier. I charged across the hot sand, ready to give him a lecture about the dangers of strangers and running off. Each step I took towards the craggy wooden columns, thick with green moss and encrusted in mollusks. I buried my foot into the sand with an angry stomp. That was when I noticed it. Besides my furious foot indents and Gregory's trail of smaller feet, there was a strange winding pattern on the sand. It seemed to be a trail of some sort. The pattern slithered smoothly through the sand, as if it was made by a snake, but there were no grooves or indents that one would expect to see from a scaly serpent. Furthermore, the tracks were wide, wider than those made by a tractor tire. Those couldn't possibly belong to any sea snake or eel native to this part of the world. My mind began to race, pondering what strange alien organism the storm might have washed up. You hear about it all the time. Deep sea creatures are churned up by the waves during a storm and end up washed up on beaches. Frilled sharks and fang-toothed viperfish. Perhaps it was an abnormally large oarfish. Eagerly, I followed the trail all the way through the sand up to Gregory, who had also been following the strange tracks too. My curiosity and intrigue washed away any concern and caused me to completely forget how angry I was at him for not listening to me. We followed the trail until they came to their abrupt halt at the foot of one of the pier columns. There, beneath the pier, in the shade of the creaking wood structure, we looked around for the creature, but saw nothing. We stood puzzled for a moment, wondering how the tracks could just cease. But then I had a thought. If the creature was a snake, maybe it coiled itself around the column and hoisted itself up. With that thought in mind, my eyes trailed upwards. Excitement of discovery quickly washed away from my mind as my theory was proven right, and the sudden realization of danger came flooding in. High above, nested across beams coated in patches of fossilized mollusks and riddled with mites, there were these great thick black coils, which looped and wrapped around the supports above. I searched for its head, desperately hoping to find it and be safe in the knowledge that the creature wasn't as big as I first suspected. Of course, this was not the case. The thing was enormous, 20 to 25 foot in length, the kind of thing that you might see on a cheap late-night monster movie. Slowly, I stepped backwards and attempted to tell my brother to calmly leave, trying not to trigger the animal above to attack us. Gregory began to whimper, and I heard a loud, threatening hiss that sent terror rippling up my spine. Beads of sweat ran down the sides of my head, as I dared to sneak a peek at the thing behind me, from the corner of my eye. A lump formed in my throat. It was there. I had found its head and it was looking right at him. Nervously, I edged myself around and saw the head and neck of the serpent, hanging down from the rafters above. Ethereal was the only word I could use to describe the beast. An abomination risen from the deepest, muddy pits of Davy Jones' locker. Its head was sleek, smooth, scaleless, and as black as midnight. The rest of its body was the same, a long, thick anaconda ink smear. Though I would describe its shape as that of a serpent, it lacked scales. Its skin was smooth like an eel, but was neither squishy or slimy. Rays of light from the sun outside penetrated the shadow of the pier's underbelly, shimmering off the shiny, night-coloured head of the serpent, revealing it to be devoid of features. Not an eye or nostril, 
Not a lip or tooth. There was nothing upon its round, bullet-shaped head. I knew then that those old fisherman tales my grandfather would drunkenly recite to me as a child, of sea beasts, mermaids and leviathans, were anything but fictional folklore handed down to scare small boys. Without visible lips, nostrils or gills, it emitted a terrible sound. An otherworldly hiss resonated from the black leviathan. The noise deafened my hearing and filled my ears with a high-pitched tone. I couldn't scream. I dared not, as the tone bored deep into my bones and sent tremors through my heart. I remember feeling my whole body seize up, as if entombed in the death grip of that creature's coils, yet it had not moved an inch to touch me. I remember thinking this wasn't real. It had to be a nightmare, conjured up from too much sugar or that cheese pizza I had before bed. Yet, denial did not shatter this encounter or draw back the curtain to reveal it was all in my head. No. Instead, the hissing continued as the worm moved its head towards me, so slowly. It almost didn't look like it was moving at all. I knew it was. My bones trembled and an immense weight of pressure swelled within me, threatening to crush me beneath it. I remember staring into that reflective black face of that thing, seeing my frightened face staring back and thinking, this is it. This will be the last thing I see, as my sight started to fail and my head thumped and swirled with dizziness. Blood trickled down from my nose and, though I could feel it running down my lips, I couldn't move to swipe it away. I couldn't move at all. Then the serpent's head split open, peeling back to reveal its banana-yellow maw and numerous hypodermic hooked fangs nestled within its vibrant gums. Each tooth was translucent, glass-like almost. Those transparent teeth lit up with an electric blue glow as neon liquid filled the clear-coloured fangs. That was poison, I thought. A foul stench of stagnant seawater and decaying fish gushed from the maw of that thing and struck my face, causing vomit to race up into my throat. In that thing's mouth, I saw my death. I foresaw my end. I knew that what awaited me was that thing's jaws, but what I did not foresee was what happened next. Gregory, who must have escaped the paralyzing hiss of the serpent, let out a cry, calling my name. The noise startled the creature or drew its attention at the very least, causing its hissing to halt instantly. I fell to the ground, free of the creature's intent, and there I lay helpless and afraid. My fading sight caught sight of the serpent turning towards my brother, lunging forward and snapping him up all in one motion. It was lightning fast. One minute Gregory was standing there on the edge of the pier's shadow, the next he was gone. That was the last time I saw Gregory. That sight and his pitiful squeal were all I had to remember him. I blacked out, and when I came to, I was in a hospital bed, hooked up to numerous machines. Apparently, I was suffering from severe hypoxia, but no one could explain how that could happen to an 11-year-old boy on the beach. The sheriff came to see me, told me and mum how lucky I was that my friends found me beneath the pier. Gregory wasn't as lucky as me. He was missing, and though the sheriff assured me he would find him, I knew he never would. There was a monster, I cried, but the doctors assured my mother that this was just the hypoxia causing a state of delirium. Strange that, because my story never changed. 
nor did I stop spouting it. For weeks and months and years after Gregory's disappearance, that delirious story of a monster continued to be recited from my lips. I told my mother about the serpent beneath the pier. I told the police, my friends, my teacher. I even told that woman who was looking for her missing daughter. But none of them believed me. They all said that Gregory wandered off, as kids do, and either drowned or was taken by a stranger. My mother slipped into a depression and never emerged from it. She never said it out loud, but in her eyes, after her third or fourth bottle, I could see it. The contempt. She blamed me for Gregory's death, and she wasn't wrong to do so. I was the eldest. I should have known better. I should have looked after him. I should have never left him on the beach. Maybe if I hadn't, he wouldn't have wandered off under the pier. We should have just made sandcastles on the beach and never followed those strange tracks. Eventually, I stopped talking about the monster that took my brother, but I never stopped thinking about it. When I grew up, I took up a job as a fisherman like my grandfather, who died during a big storm. My mother believed I did so out of tradition, or some love for my grandfather. But the truth was I was looking for the killer of my childhood summers, the monster that took everything from me. And though I never found the thing, I never forgot the serpent washed up by the waves. Each time when a big storm rolled in, I would seek out obituaries missing people's posters and crime reports of kidnappings and every time there would be a missing dog, a lost elderly person, or a missing child article, all of whom vanished down by the beach the day after a storm, I knew it was that thing, or others like it. This is why I refused to let my kids set foot on a beach, why I would spend so long out at sea and drink away my troubles. So I write this, not out of desire to leave those I love, but out of a guilt over Gregory and all those at my silence are doomed. Tonight, there is a big storm. The winds are whipping the waves up. The thunder calls me. I am going down to the pier to end this, but should I not return, then heed this tale as a warning. Beware the beaches. They found my dad's jacket floating in a rock pool not far from the shore. They think he might have went out there to kill himself. But after I found this letter, I told them something took him, as it took my uncle. Please, if you go swimming, if you should see some strange tracks slithering across the sand, do not follow them. There are monsters in the sea. I was only a child, a tiny nine-year-old girl playing on the playground at daycare when I discovered my greatest fear. I remember everything about that day. The scene burned in my head like a nightmare. The other children at the daycare and I had been running around in glee, playing a game of hide-and-seek and screeching with delight. The warm sun was starting to get low on the horizon, hinting that playtime would be over soon. Just like every Saturday, my mum would be arriving to scoop me up and take me out for ice cream. It had been a good day for the most part. I had a tasty snack and my favourite flavour of juice. We had watched a movie about a cat and a dog being best friends. Things briefly took a sad turn when one of the other boys, a ten-year-old bully named Brian, pushed me roughly off the swing set and got muddle over my new pink shirt. 
He had bullied me several times that week, throwing mud at me, kicking sand in my face, tripping me as I ran around with friends. I cried loudly, and the lady who was watching us yelled at him and put him out in time out for a while. She cleaned me up with a smile and gave me a cookie that brightened my mood. Soon after that, things were all back to being happy, and I ran off to play hide-and-seek with the other kids. There were large trees around the playground of the daycare, and many of the other kids would just hide around the back of the trunk and run whenever they heard you coming to find them. Brian was not playing with us, and had went off to sulk somewhere in the trees. I was the seeker, and I had found most of the others out of the playground, when I finally headed over to the trees in search for the, the last few. The sun was getting closer to setting at this point, which made the thick trees give off ominous shadows. I shuddered a little, but ran between the trees anyway, determined not to lose the game. After a few minutes of looking around, I realised none of the other kids were hiding there. I heard no giggles or hushed whispers, only the calm stillness of the hot summer forest. I turned around to head back to the others when I heard a wet, gurgling sound coming from behind me. I froze in place, goosebumps appearing on my arms and the hair on the back of my neck standing up straight. The gurgling sound continued, and I slowly found the courage to turn around. My heart pounded in my chest as I expected to see some sort of monster behind me, but there was nothing to be found. I stayed extremely still. The fear that something was watching me, waiting to leap out and devour me, was choking my heart. After a few moments, I heard what sounded like a weak cough, followed by another wet gurgling noise. At this point, I started to believe one of the other children were trying to pull a prank to scare me, and had given it away with the accidental cough. I grinned as the fear started slipping away, and began to run quickly in the direction of the cough, hoping to jump out and scare them before they could try and finish their prank. I quickly rounded a giant tree near a small embankment, and my heart started pounding wildly in my chest. The sight I saw would be burning in my memory for the rest of my life. In front of me, Brian lay on the ground, weakly convulsing. He was ghostly white, and foamy pink liquid trickled out of his mouth and down the side of his face. Sitting on top of his chest was some kind of snake. My childhood brain did not know what kind it was, nor did that seem important at the moment. All I knew was that it was venomous, and it had bitten Brian. I fell backwards with a rough shriek, clambering away wildly to put as much distance between the twitching body and myself as possible. I felt cold as ice, and my limbs felt numb. My heart was beating so fast that it sounded like roaring in my ears. The creature slithered off Brian's body and started moving towards me, and my instinct kicked in and told me to run. I bolted back towards the playground, screaming at the top of my lungs for help. I ran on shaky limbs, tripping and falling and getting scratched up in the process, but I did not look back even once. When the ambulance arrived, it was too late to save Brian. They carried him on a stretcher with a white sheet covering his body, and another man who arrived in the ambulance sat me down inside the daycare and cleaned my wounds. I was in a state of shock and fear, and I trembled and cried for what felt like hours while my mum held me and stroked my hair. I remember the anguish on Brian's little brother's face when he and his family arrived at the daycare, the pain in his eyes as he looked at me from across the yard and screamed wildly at the top of his lungs. 
I never went back to that daycare again, and I started having to see a nice doctor who gave me lollipops every week instead. As I grew up, I later learned that he was a therapist and my mum had taken me to him to help me deal with the trauma of seeing a dying body. We never went to Brian's funeral, but I overheard my mum talking to someone on the phone one night about how they couldn't find out what kind of snake had bitten him. I developed a severe phobia of snakes and had to be put on anxiety medication as a teenager because even depictions of them in movies would give me a panic attack and I started having PTSD when getting anywhere near the woods. My therapist thought I had manifested a phobia with a guilt complex and I had been carrying a heavy misplaced feeling of guilt for Brian's death, as well as a general strong phobia. I have to be honest, it made a lot of sense. In a way, I did feel guilty. I felt guilty that my crying had gotten him into trouble in the first place, and that I couldn't help him and ran. I feared lifting the toilet seat at night in case a snake had climbed up the sewer pipes. I had frequent nightmares of him calling for help, while a giant version of the shiny green snake swallowed him. I was mentally a mess. When I was 16, I spent the night at a friend's house who happened to have a pet king snake. She did not tell me ahead of time, and when I walked into her room, I saw it and promptly fainted. Her family called an ambulance, and I never spent the night at anyone's house again after that. My phobia controlled many things in my life, as much as I hate to admit it. All I ever wanted was to put the past behind me and completely forget about what happened. But no matter how many hours of therapy and trials of medication I took, I could not erase the scene burned in my mind. When I started college and had begun to make leaps and bounds in improving my mental health, I had started to overcome my phobia enough that I could see snakes on TV without panicking and could even handle seeing them in person as long as they were behind glass. I was finally able to go on a date at the zoo for the first time in my life. That was when the weird things started happening. I was walking home from school when I saw a rustle in the bushes up ahead of me. I kept my calm, just assuming it was a rabbit or a large bird, and carefully avoided walking past it. Not a big deal, right? No reason to think it was a snake. In fact, that was a completely irrational thought to begin with. The problem was, it wasn't the only time it happened. I started to see movement out of the corner of my eye when I was entering a school building, my house, or even my car on some occasions. I started to feel like something was watching me in my own home. Several times I woke up to think I saw something quickly darting away from my window. Now, any rational person would have thought that someone was stalking them, but I was not rational. My crazy brain had fully convinced me that the snake was coming back for revenge for seeing it kill Brian. It had been approaching the ten year of the incident, after all. My therapist became extremely concerned when I talked to him about this, asking if I had anyone I could stay with for a while to get a break from my environment. I told him yes, and I planned on staying the night at a close girlfriend's house, one with no pet snakes, for the weekend to try to clear my head. My friend's house was about a mile away from the house that I had been renting, and I decided to walk there to get some fresh air and convince myself that I was not going crazy and did not need to stay locked inside of my house. I was about halfway there when someone in a red car pulled up and parked on the side of the road close behind me. 
I glanced backwards briefly and saw someone I did not recognize getting out, and then kept walking, feeling a bit uneasy for some reason. The next thing I knew, I heard footsteps rapidly approaching behind me. As I went to turn to look around, a large hand clasped over my mouth and nose, a strong, sour scent filling my nostrils. I struggled against my abductor, clawing at their arms and tearing skin. I kicked wildly, screaming and biting at the hand around my face. The next thing I knew, everything went black. I woke up in a haze, my head dizzy and spinning. It took a few moments for my vision to clear, but when it did, I saw that I was tied tightly to a tree trunk. It was dark outside and I could barely see anything more than a few feet in front of me. I had a sour taste in my mouth and my eyes were having a hard time focusing, but I could tell I was still fully clothed and I was grateful for that. My heart was pounding and I knew I had been abducted, but I didn't know why or who did it, so I knew I needed to play cautiously. I slowly started fiddling with the ropes that bound me to the tree. They were sloppily tied at my wrists and ankles, but tightly looped around the tree several times. I wiggled, gently, testing the strength of the rope. When I heard a voice in the darkness and an icy chill ran down my spine. Oh, you are awake. Good, the male voice said. Why did you kidnap me? What do you want? I asked, trying to sound brave. But my shaky voice betrayed me. Suddenly the man came out of the darkness and was upon me, his hands around my throat, choking me up against the tree trunk. Little bitch, he spat, tightening his grip on my throat. I started to see stars in my vision, blotting out his features. It's your fault that my fucking brother died. I'm going to kill you for what you did. I was close to blacking out again, and I knew it would all be over if I did. I was about to die in the middle of the woods with some crazy man breaking my windpipe. Realization rang in my oxygen-starved brain at what he said and I weakly choked out, Not me. Was Snake. At this, he let go of my throat and kicked me hard in the stomach. I coughed, roughly, my vision swirling in colorful splotches and pain radiating through my body. No, he screamed in my face. It was you. The other kids told me that you were the one who got him in trouble. He never would have been out there by himself if it wasn't for you. You stupid bitch. Didn't you even try to help him when he was laying there dying? His hot breath on my face made my stomach churn and threatened to empty itself. I was wheezing, unable to reply. I wouldn't have known what to say even if I could have. The guilty part that always blamed myself thought it might be fitting for me to die in retaliation for not helping his brother. But the other part of me wanted to live so badly. I was shaking, my heart thudding in my chest and I struggled roughly against my bonds. He chuckled, and the next thing I knew I felt something cold and sharp bite against my throat. You are going to die so that I can finally feel some relief. I wiggled my arms harder, feeling the poorly tied knot around one of my arms start to loosen. The movement pushed the blade further into my throat and I felt a trickle of warm blood drip down my collarbone. This is it, I thought to myself. I'm going to die and no one will know what happened to me. There was no life flashing before my eyes, like is so often talked about when facing death. I just felt cold, empty, and afraid. I didn't want to die and would have given anything to escape. 
I managed to get a hold of my phone from my back pocket with my looser arm and attempted to dial the emergency number. I hoped that if I died, at least they would be able to hear some of what was going on and would be able to locate my body. Suddenly, the man pulled back and dropped the knife to the ground with a soft thump. What the fuck? I heard him say. There was a rustle in the darkness, and then he started screaming. He screamed and cursed at the top of his lungs, and for a moment I thought someone had come to rescue me. I heard his body hit the floor loudly, and he started writhing around in agony. I took advantage of whatever was going on before me to free one of my arms and untie the other one. Once I wriggled both of my hands free, I pulled my phone out of my pocket. The call to the 911 dispatch had successfully went through, and they were being silent on the line but still there. I turned on my flashlight and shined it at the scene unfolding in front of me. The man was convulsing violently on the ground before me. As he screeched, foamy, bloody spit flew from his mouth, and his face was splattered with it. He looked deathly pale, and I froze in fear at what I saw. Coiled around his right leg was the same kind of snake that had bitten Brian so many years ago. The same shiny luminescent green scales glittered under the glow of my flashlight. I quickly started trying to talk to the 911 dispatcher, who had been being silent for my safety. I told her what was happening, and that I had been abducted and tied up in the woods, that my attacker had been bitten by a snake and was on the ground. The words flew from my mouth in a jumbled mess, but luckily the woman understood. To my great relief, they tracked down my phone, and police were already on the way. I kept struggling, but could not get free of the rope that was tightly securing me to the tree. I fully expected that the snake would bite me next, and instead of having my throat slit I would die convulsing and foaming at the mouth like the man on the ground. I was trapped and helpless against the emerald attacker. I kept my eyes on the scene in front of me, feeling empty and watching with numb horror as the man died on the ground before my eyes. The snake uncoiled itself from the man's leg and looked straight at me. I stared back at it, knowing its yellow eyes were the last thing I would likely see in my life. The object of my absolute terror throughout my whole life, the creature that consumed so many pieces of my life, it was finally going to take me, and it would all be over. But then it did something I didn't expect. It turned away from me. It slithered away into the bushes and disappeared. I'm not proud to say it, but I promptly fainted. The next thing I remember, I was in the back of an ambulance en route to the hospital. The police had cut me free from the tree and the paramedics had loaded me into the ambulance. At the hospital, I had a few cracked ribs and a pretty severe laceration on my throat. I had to get blood transfusions from the throat wound and would have likely bled out if they hadn't found me in time. The police were completely perplexed by the case, because it was an extremely unlikely coincidence that both the man and his younger brother had both died from an unknown species of snake bite, but they didn't have any other way to explain the bite wound on his leg. I was not a suspect, because I had been so tightly tied to the tree that I had actually begun losing circulation in my legs, and there was no way that I could have done anything. I had lived my whole life in fear of a creature that saved my life in the end. I don't know why the snake didn't kill me, or how such a strange coincidence could have happened. 
If anyone has anything similar that's happened, please let me know. I truly wish to understand. The first death I saw destroyed me, but the second death set me free.